and welcome to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Friday, March 1st, 2024. I'm your reader, Grace Barter. The Iowa DNR ends its sponsorship of the Disabled Vets Fishing Trip. The Iowa Department of Natural Resources has been a sponsor of the therapeutic fishing event Veterans Casting Away Disabilities for six years after persuading the nonprofit group to bring the event from Minnesota to the Honey Creek Resort, home to Lake Rathbun near Moravius. State conservation officers have helped veterans enter and exit boats, filleted the fish caught by veterans, and helped veterans sign up for fishing licenses. But this year, Iowa DNR Director Kayla Lyon told organizers she no longer will let conservation officers or other department employees spend as much paid time at the event and asked organizers to remove the Iowa DNR's name and logo from all marketing materials, boat trailers, and other equipment associated with the event. Iowa DNR's legislative liaison, Todd Kofelt, suggested the Department of Veterans Affairs could provide educational programming on the fishing trip. Iowa DNR spokesman, Tammy Krausman, said in an email to the Gazette this week, the department still is available to provide educational presentations and conservation information. Senate Minority Leader Pam Jokum told the nonprofit the agency is facing budget challenges. State appropriations to the Iowa DNR have been flat for the last several years. Kurt Sickles, a Navy veteran, has been planning the annual fishing trip for veterans for 27 years, first as an employee with Veteran Affairs and now as a director of Veterans Casting Away Disabilities. This year, the group has 46 veterans and 31 caregivers signed up for the trip May 12th through 19th. More than 20 volunteers, including Iowa's first gentleman, Kevin Reynolds, in past years, bring their pontoons and fishing boats so veterans can go out and fish on Lake Rathbun. One man, a triple amputee, designed a fishing pole that hooks to his wheelchair with a reel on his armrest, Sickles said. The nonprofit has other adaptive equipment, such as poles that vibrate or beep for people with visual impairment. While veterans fish, the nonprofit hosts activities including a shopping trip, crafts or pedicures for spouses or other caregivers. The nonprofit raises money to pay for lodging and meals at the state-owned Honey Creek Resort and also pays for Iowa fishing licenses for the veterans. Without the help of Iowa DNR employees, Veterans Casting Away Disabilities needs to recruit more volunteers with fishing and boat safety experience, Sickles said. It also had the expense of removing the department's logo from a boat trailer and marketing materials. Readers interested in helping disabled veterans board boats safely or volunteering in another way may contact the nonprofit at castwaysboard at gmail.com. Readers also may donate to the program at the group's website.
Capital Improvement Fund for Benton Schools goes to the voters. Voters in the Benton Community School District are being asked to decide Tuesday on the fate of a new capital projects fund, a year after a multi-million bond referendum in the district failed. The fund, called the Physical Plant and Equipment Levy, would create more than $1 million in revenue annually for the district to pay for safety and security enhancements, heating and cooling upgrades, renovations to classrooms, and outdoor infrastructure improvements, including landscaping and playgrounds. Polls are open from 7 a.m. to 8 p.m. on Tuesday. Because this is a special election, polling places may be different from a general election. Benton Superintendent James Bischke said the district sought feedback from the community and collected 1,700 surveys that helped the board prioritize projects to be funded. Your voice, your vote, Bischke said. If approved, the Capital Improvement Fund would increase property taxes and state income taxes for schools within the district. Voters will be asked to approve a surtax on individual income taxes, as allowed by Iowa law, that would go to school districts, a way to avoid all the impact going to property taxes alone. If the measure is approved, PPEL would be set through 2035 at a rate of $1.34 per $1,000 of taxable property value. But it is estimated the property tax levy would increase the overall rate $0.74 cents per $1,000 of taxable value. For a $200,000 home, the estimated increase to school property taxes in the district would be $65 a year, or a total of $966 a year for all school taxes. The state's rollback formula decreases the percentage of residential property that is taxable from 54.6% to about 46%. Bishke said the district is in the position of having finances available to fix something if it breaks to make repairs as needed, but voter-approved PPEL would create a revenue stream for the district to make major improvements, he said. Benton has one of the lowest school levy tax rates in Iowa, even if the new tax levy passes, Bishke said. The current levy is $9.70 for $1,000 of taxable value. Upgrades funded by PPEL, if approved by voters, would be renovations to indoor learning environments, including flooring, wall coverings, ceilings and lighting, electrical work, and disability access. Outdoor renovations at all attendance centers could include landscaping, signage, playgrounds, doors, and roof repairs. In March 2023, residents opposed a $48.5 million school bond referendum for Benton schools, with 64% voting against the measure and 65% voting against a levy to pay the principal of the bond. 
Fishke told the Gazette in June 2023 that he doesn't look at the defeated bond referendum as a failure. The proposed projects under that referendum included building a new elementary school in Van Horn, renovations, and an addition to Atkins Elementary School, and safety upgrades and improvements to the heating, cooking, cooling, and electrical system at the middle and high school. It was the first bond referendum in the Benton Community School District since 1979. Even though the bond failed, our community is one of the most supported communities of a school district across the state. They just didn't like the last plan, and that's why it was our job to come back with a new one, Bishke said. The district serves about 1,700 K-12 students in eight communities and is growing by 1% to 2% per year, school officials said. The Linmar and Marion school districts also are asking voters Tuesday to consider extending the PPL for an additional 10 years. Both districts have had the funds in place for more than a decade. If the measures are approved, PPEL would be extended through 2035 at the existing rate of $1.34 per $1,000 of taxable property value. Voters in the Cedar Rapids district will be asked in September to extend the PPEL for 10 years. The funds support the maintenance and upkeep of the Cedar Rapids school's 425 acres and 2.7 million square feet of building space. A bill to regulate the use of traffic cameras in Iowa is again making its way through the State House as lawmakers struggle to agree on how much to regulate the systems in use in some Iowa cities. Police chiefs from across Iowa were at the Capitol on Thursday to show their support for the measure, even as they have opposed a separate bill in the Senate to ban the use of traffic cameras entirely. Revenues from speeding tickets issued by cameras often go to fund police departments. Senate File 489 would require cities and counties to apply for approval from the State Department of Transportation to install traffic cameras to monitor speed limit and red light violations. The bill, which passed out of the Senate Transportation Committee last year, passed out of a Senate Tax Policy Subcommittee on Thursday. A separate Senate bill, which has moved out of the Judiciary Committee, would ban the use of traffic cameras entirely. That measure is paired with stricter prohibitions on the use of a cell phone while driving. The bill discussed Thursday was the one favored by law enforcement officials who said traffic enforcement cameras have a legitimate use and can significantly improve public safety while freeing up officers to respond to calls for service. Davenport Police Chief Jeff Bladel told lawmakers he is not opposed to regulation of traffic cameras, but they are effective in changing drivers' behavior and an important piece of a community's public safety strategy. 
Cedar Rapids Police Chief David Dostal said that there was around a 47% chance that an accident on Interstate 380 through the city would result in an injury before the city installed traffic cameras. That number has fallen to around 27% since putting up the cameras. Under the bill, local governments that apply for a traffic camera permit would need to show the record of traffic violations and collisions at a location where they want to install a camera. The application would need to include a list of alternative enforcement measures the city or county has taken or considered and an explanation of the need at that location. Cameras approved by the state could only be used to cite a driver for speeding or for not stopping at a red light or railroad crossing. The cameras could not be used to monitor license plate numbers when investigating non-traffic crimes. Cameras could only be put up in neighborhoods, school zones, construction zones, or areas where alternative traffic enforcement is difficult or dangerous. Speeding tickets issued by the cameras could range from $75 for 10 miles per hour over the speed limit to $500 for 30 miles per hour over. The fines would be higher in a construction zone. Cities and counties with a population under 20,000 could be approved for a camera, but they could only use them to issue warnings, not citations. The full traffic camera ban was proposed and championed by Senator Brad Zahn, a Republican from Irvindale. The bill, which also includes a ban on cell phone use while driving, had enough support to pass committees in the Senate and House, but it's unclear whether there is enough support to pass it in either full chamber. Iowa House Republicans passed legislation on Wednesday that would require schools to teach a list of social studies concepts developed by a conservative think tank that focuses on the cultural heritage of Western civilization and emphasizes a positive view of U.S. history. House File 2544 passed in the House largely along party lines on Wednesday, 58 to 37. Three Republicans joined all Democrats in voting against the bill. The language in the bill was modeled by the Civics Alliance, an offshoot of the conservative nonprofit National Association of Scholars. The group advocates for a curriculum designed to emphasize conservative values, Western civilization, and capitalism in civics education, and push out instruction on critical race theory, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and social justice. The bill includes requirements to teach students about the structure of the U.S. government, the rights and responsibilities of U.S. citizens, and a range of concepts, people, and events in U.S. history, including the flag and national anthem, the country's founding documents, and figures like Benjamin Franklin and Frederick Douglass. The requirements would apply to both public and private schools. In grades 1 through 6, instruction would include the institutions of liberty that emphasizes the good, worthwhile, and best achievements of these ideals. Starting in 7th grade, schools would need to teach about the study of and devotion to the United States' exceptional and praiseworthy history. In grades 7 and 8, 
The bill would require instruction on the early colonies, the Revolutionary War, the westward expansion of the U.S., the First and Second World Wars, the Cold War, the Civil Rights Movement, and the September 11th attacks. The required instruction would include economics that focus on the free enterprise system and its benefits and the failures of communist systems and what Western civilization stands for, what we stand for as Americans. Democrats said the bill would push a conservative political agenda and take the freedom from teachers and experts to determine school history standards. They pointed out the lack of requirements in the bill to instruct on Native Americans or the Jim Crow South and other historical injustices. The bill does not require general instruction on the history of slavery in the U.S., but it does call for instruction on the Emancipation Proclamation and the Pennsylvania Act for the gradual abolition of slavery. Democrats also criticized the bill, placing specific instruction requirements on teachers, saying that at the high school level, much of the previous grade's instruction would be required. The bill would increase the required credits a student must take of U.S. history, add a required unit of civics, and add a required unit of Western civilization. Bill was also would require the use of a civics exam in high school that is not developed by the school or teacher. Students admitted to Iowa's public universities would also be required to take a civics exam. Lawmakers also amended the bill on the floor to require schools to include instruction on the Holocaust. House Republicans proposed the bill this year as part of a larger focus on education standards and curriculum. They also said the bill was necessary to teach Iowa students about the high points of American history and the achievements of the country's major historical figures, pointing to movements to take down statues of historical Americans and growing disapproval of capitalism among young people. They said students have been taught disproportionately about the negatives in American history. And the Iowa House Republicans passed a bill late Wednesday night after lengthy debate and vocal opposition by Democrats that would create a new permitting process for Iowa school districts to arm trained staff. House File 2586 passed on a party-line vote, 61 to 34, at around 11 p.m., following nearly two hours of debate with Democrats opposed. The bill now heads to the Iowa Senate for consideration. Iowa Code currently allows approved school staff to carry a gun on campus should they choose. Two districts in northwest Iowa put policies in place but rescinded them last year to avoid being dropped by their insurance carrier for liability coverage. This year's legislation looks to address insurers' concerns by putting in place a new permitting process that allows employees at Iowa's public and private schools and colleges to carry a firearm on school grounds during school hours. It also would include provide qualified immunity and then indemnify school districts from criminal or civil liability for all damages incurred pursuant to the application of reasonable force. 
There's no mention of insurance in the bill. House Republican lawmakers said their intent is to bring insurers back to the table and said they're confident the permitting, training, and indemnity provisions in the bill will alleviate insurers' concerns. School districts would not be required to arm staff. Rather, the bill provides requirements for those districts that choose to do so. In order to receive a profession professional permit to carry weapons, employees would have to pass an annual background check and complete a firearm safety course. In addition to one-time legal training on issues such as qualified immunity, as well as annual communication and emergency medical trainings approved by the Iowa Department of Public Safety, plus quarterly live firearms training. The bill also would require school districts with at least 8,000 students, among them Cedar Rapids, Davenport, Council Bluffs, Iowa City, and Sioux City, to have at least one armed private security guard or school resource officer in each district high school. Districts could opt out of the requirement for having an armed security officer at a high school by a vote of the school board. Schools with fewer than 8,000 students would be encouraged, but not required, to employ school resource officers or security officers at high schools. The state would establish a school security personnel grant program fund that would match up to $50,000 for employing security personnel. Identities of school staff issued a weapons permit would be confidential and not subject to disclosure under Iowa's open records law. Staff in the district will be allowed to carry concealed weapons during school hours. It would be up to districts to decide which firearms staff could carry and whether the district would provide those or allow use of personal firearms. Supporters of the bill said the fastest way to respond to a school shooting is to have armed personnel on site, trained and available to respond at a moment's notice. Parents, law enforcement, and school superintendents from rural communities, as well as gun rights activists, have said while school resource officers play an important role in Iowa schools, it is unrealistic unrealistic to expect a single police officer is always going to be at the right place at just the right time should tragedy strike. House Democrats oppose arming teachers, citing risks to staff and students. Rather, they said lawmakers should instead pursue an evidence-based intervention plan that addresses school violence, and they advocated for providing resources for mental health services. It was emphasized the need for more adults in schools rather than armed teachers to address safety concerns and prevent violence, including providing funding for schools to hire specialists to help students with homelessness, poverty, bullying, and more. The Iowa House on Thursday passed a bill that reorganizes the funding and oversight of Iowa's area education agencies, the first major milestone for the proposal after lawmakers spent the past two months weighing changes to the state's special education network. 
House Republicans proposed House File 2612 after they blocked a more expansive and dramatic proposal from Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds that would have allowed school districts to spend their special education dollars outside the AEAs. The House bill keeps Iowa's AEAs as the sole provider of special education support in the state. State funding for special education services would go to the school districts, and they would be required to use that funding with the AEAs. School districts would receive an allocation for media services and other education services that has been provided to AEAs, and the districts would be able to choose whether to use that money with the AEAs or with another party once the bill is fully phased in for the 2026-27 school year. The bill passed 53-41 with only Republican votes. Nine Republicans joined Democrats in voting against the bill. The Senate AEA bill, Senate File 2386, has moved out of committee, but it has not reached a floor vote. The bill differs significantly from the House proposal, and it would allow schools to seek special education services outside the AEAs. The chamber will need to agree on a single bill in order to send it to Reynolds to be signed into law. House Democrats said there is no need for changes to the AEA system and that the call for changes was based on faulty assumptions about poor test scores and performance of students with disabilities. Democrats said they supported the piece of the bill that calls for a task force to study the structure and services of the AEAs, but they did not want to make any changes before convening that study group. Iowa's nine AEAs, which are governmental agencies separate from the Department of Education, provide special education support to school districts in their boundaries and assist with classroom equipment and media services, professional develop, and talented and gifted instruction, among other services. Right now, the services are largely funded by property taxes and special federal education dollars. Beyond the funding changes, the bill would bring the AEAs under the Iowa Department of Education and create a new state division of special education to oversee them. The division would handle oversight and federal and state compliance for educating students with disabilities. The bill would move the AEA's governing boards to an advisory capacity and require state approval of AEA budgets. The salary for AEA administrators would be capped at 125% of the average salary of all the school superintendents within the AEA's boundary. The bill also would establish a task force to study the AEAs led by the legislative leaders of both parties. An amendment also makes the number of field employees for the State Division of Special Education flexible, with up to 40 employees split between the nine AEAs. Division would hire 13 new employees based in Des Moines. A number of school superintendents were on board with the bill, saying they would be able to personalize their district's special education services and spend their money more efficiently. 
noted that several organizations who were originally against the bill had switched their registration to undecided. And the state unveils a new mobile job search bus. The Iowa Workforce Development is packing up and taking its show on the road to help connect unemployed Iowans to job opportunities. Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds and Iowa Workforce Development on Thursday announced the deployment of the state's first mobile workforce center. The new 32-foot custom-built bus was built to supplement the state's 18 Iowa Works offices to deliver workforce services to Iowans who may not have easy access to those offices. Ten computer workstations are in the bus where staff can assist with job searches and navigating unemployment claims. A monitor inside will allow staff members to lead job search workshops or hiring fairs, and a monitor mounted on the outside of the vehicle will allow for outdoor events during warmer months. The Mobile Workforce Center also includes an ADA-accessible entrance in the back of the vehicle for Iowans with disabilities. It will visit communities with higher rates of unemployment, including the southeastern part of the state, and appear at high schools, community colleges, career fairs, and recruiting events for employers to assist job seekers and showcase the opportunities that exist in Iowa's workforce. That includes showcasing registered apprenticeship programs and other work-based learning opportunities to help fill workforce shortages in health care, teaching, and other high-demand fields. The Mobile Workforce Center was born out of the COVID-19 pandemic's impact on Iowa's economy. The Mobile Workforce Center will begin traveling across the state next week, starting in several communities in central, eastern, and southeast Iowa. The $479,000 bus was paid for through a combination of federal COVID relief dollars and federal grants used by Iowa Works to coordinate services for companies and workers affected by layoffs or economic downturns. And the House passes a Regents University bill. The House Republicans' legislation to cap tuition and restrict diversity, equity, and inclusion programs at the state's three public universities passed the chamber on a party-line vote. The House Republican proposal would cap annual tuition and fees increases at 3%, prohibit the consideration of race and other protected class characteristics for admissions, eliminate any diversity, equity, and inclusion program that is not necessary for compliance with federal law, require that services available from diversity or multicultural affairs offices are available to all students, require all three universities to submit a report by the end of the year that reviews all DEI-related positions and job responsibilities, and add two state legislators as non-voting members to the Board of Regents, require the use of a presidential selection committee to provide candidate recommendations to the board when selecting a new university president. During debate, 
Democrats criticize the bill as politically motivated, given that many conservatives have pushed back at diversity, equity, and inclusion programs in recent years. Democrats also said they support capping tuition increases for college students, but warned against doing so without more state funding to offset revenue decreases for the universities. And the state retirement benefits for police officers and firefighters would cover all cancers, not just some, under legislation approved unanimously by the Iowa House. The proposal eliminates from state law the specification of individual cancers covered by the retirement programs and instead covers all cancers. The bill, House File 2482, passed the Iowa House with a 96-0 vote and is now eligible for consideration in the Senate. You are listening to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Friday, March 1st, on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Now, let's turn to today's obituaries. Robert Dean Hall was born in Silvis, Illinois. Rob moved to Central City in 1980 and operated the Corner Tavern. He ended up in Calvert City, Kentucky. Rob owned and operated Hall Home Construction before moving back home. Alexis, also Lexi J. Gonzalez, 25, of Atkins, passed away on February 26th. Celebration of Life Gathering will be from 2 to 5 p.m. on Sunday, March 3rd at Brosh Chapel and the Ava Center in Cedar Rapids. Private family and earnment will be at a later date. Gary Lee Dundee Sr., age 76, of Cedar Rapids, passed away at his home on Tuesday, February 27th. A visitation will be held at the Cedar Memorial Park Funeral Home on Saturday, March 2nd, from 10 a.m. until service time at 12 p.m. Interment to follow at the Cedar Memorial Park Cemetery Garden of the Cross. Gary was born on April 30, 1947, in Postville. On February 18, 1967, Gary married Alice Cook in Mount Vernon. Gary loved to fish. He worked for over 30 years as a plumber with the local 125. Gary served in the U.S. Army during the Vietnam War. Memorial contributions may be made in his name to the Cedar Valley Humane Society. Val Dean, Val Lemke, 88, longtime accounting professor at the Tippy College of Business at the University of Iowa, died Tuesday, February 27th. Funeral services will be held at 10.30 a.m. Saturday, March 2nd, at Gloria Day Lutheran Church in Iowa City. Visitation will take place from 5.30 to 7 p.m. Friday, March 1st, at Gay and Kia Funeral and Cremation Service in Iowa City. Patrick Pat D. Ruff. Patrick Rupp, 47, of Elberon, passed away February 27th due to injuries sustained from an accident. Funeral service is 2 p.m. Saturday, March 2nd, at Rabick 
Newhouse Funeral Service in Belle Plaine. The burial will take place at Costa Cemetery in Costa. Visitation is Friday, March 1st at the funeral home from 4 to 7 p.m. with a time for sharing to conclude the visitation. Terry A. Mosher, 59, of Walker, passed away unexpectedly on Tuesday, February 27th. A funeral service will take place at 1 p.m. on Saturday, March 2nd at Murdoch Funeral Home and Cremation Service in Center Point with a visitation one hour prior. Burial will take place at a later date in Troy Mills Cemetery. Terry was born November 1, 1964 in Cedar Rapids. She graduated from North Lynn High School class of 1983. She was united in marriage to Phil Mosher on July 6, 1991 in Troy Mills. Her professional journey included roles at Walker Elementary School and B&D services before she became self-employed. Richard Dick Corpening, 88, of Washington, passed away Sunday, February 25th. A celebration of life will be held at 11 a.m. on Saturday, April 6th at Beatty Petersheim Funeral Home in Washington. A private family burial will be held in Wayland. Family visitation will be held on Friday, April 5th from 4 to 6 p.m. at the funeral home. Memorials may be given in Dick's name to Holicon House. Dick was born on January 31, 1936, in Washington, Iowa. He attended school in Washington County. Dick was united in marriage to the love of his life, Anna Jean Evans, on January 19, 1955. He was active in the church and lived a Christ-centered life. He was employed as a farmer, mechanic for Iowa DOT and City of Wayland. After retirement, he was known as Mr. Dick the School Bus Driver for Waco Schools. Dick and Ann were also foster parents to over 100 children and received a certificate of recognition by the Governor of Iowa. Randall Michael Vardabadian, 74, of Springville, passed away on Tuesday, February 27th. Funeral services will be held on Saturday, March 2nd at Grace Baptist Church in Marion, Iowa. The visitation will begin at 12.30 with the service at 2 p.m., followed by a meal. There will be a private burial at Peralta Cemetery in Springville for close friends and family. Randall was born on February 3, 1950 in Chicago. His interest in the Bible in Providence led him to the Pensacola Bible Institute in Florida, where he graduated with a Bachelor of Divinity in 1977. Randall was called in 1980 to begin pastoring a church in Iowa, where he faithfully served as pastor of Bible Baptist Church until he was called home to heaven. He will be remembered by many in Cedar Rapids, for his downtown street preaching. And on to the busy time of high school basketball in the sports section. Clear Creek Amana 
has earned a spot in the Class 4A Girls Basketball State Championship game. Some of the Clickbers think they earned something more. Top-ranked CCA came out a-blazing to start the second half, built an 11-point lead, then hung on for dear life at the end. The Clippers held off number 5 North Polk 50-48 to in a 4A semifinal last night at Wells Fargo Arena. CCA faces number 2 Waverly Shell Rock or number 3 Sioux City Helan for the title at 2.30 p.m. on Saturday. The Clippers seem to be sitting pretty at 47.36 when Avery Lower nailed a three-pointer with 6 minutes and 20 seconds left. But North Polk more than made things interesting down the stretch. It was 47-46 to 46 after two free throws from Campbell Schultz, then 48-47 after the teams traded follow shots. After the Clippers turned it over with 40 seconds left, Tuttle misfired from deep, and North Polk's Becca Agar grabbed the offensive rebound, only to miss a clear shot at a putback. Lower converted a runout for a 50-47 CCA lead with 3.5 seconds left. Tuttle was fouled at midcourt with 1.8 seconds remaining. She made the first free throw, then missed the second intentionally. Lower secured the rebound, and the Clippers celebrated. Solon gets back to the title game. The third-ranked Solon held number 2 DMC to 7 field goals in 36 attempts, forced the Lions into 26 turnovers, and rolled to a Class 3A semifinal win, 49-25, to at the Gates at the Girls' State Basketball Tournament at Wells Fargo Arena. The Spartans, 24-3, and returned to the state finals for the first time in 26 years. Solon was the 2A champion in 1994, 1997, and 1998, and will face number 1 Esterville-Lincoln Central for the title at 8 p.m. on Friday. The Spartans put this one in the bank in the second quarter, closing it with a 15-2 run and taking a commanding 25-10 lead into the locker room. Quillen had a putback to start it, then Miller followed with a pair of three-pointers within a span of 35 seconds. DMC was 2 of 11 from the field and coughed up 16 turnovers before halftime. Two games in three days, and for the Mount Vernon Mustangs, two completely opposite ends of the spectrum. Top-ranked Esterville Lincoln Central held the number four Mustangs to a season-low scoring output and won Thursday's Class 3A semifinal 45-37 at the Girls' State Basketball Tournament at Wells Fargo Arena. The Midgets led 28-12 at halftime, extended the advantage to as many as 20 in the third quarter, then coasted home. ELC will play for its second title in three seasons at 8 p.m. today against number 3 Solon. ELC Dynamo Haley Stokes, who scored 44 points in the Midgets' first round win over Forest City, was held to 15 Thursday, but Riley Yeager and Rushi stepped forward. 
but the Mustangs shot 29% from the field, 4 of 18 from long distance, and got no offensive flow until the final four minutes. For the Mustangs, it was the polar opposite of a brilliant quarterfinal performance against Harlan, in which they shot to a 25-point halftime lead and shot 56%. They never led Thursday and trailed 10-2 after five and a half minutes. Frank and Meester scored nine points apiece for the Mustangs. Both will be part of the nucleus of returning of the four returning starters for 24-25. And Iwan Caitlin Clark announces she's turning pro. The reigning National Player of the Year in women's basketball and one of the most recognized college athletes ever announced via social media Thursday she will turn professional at the end of the Hawkeyes' current season. What that almost certainly means is Clark will be taken with the first pick by the Indiana Fever at the April 15th WNBA draft in Brooklyn, New York. Clark, a fourth-year senior from West Des Moines, leads NCAA Division I in scoring, 32.2 points per game, and assists, 8.7, and averages 7.4 rebounds. She has shepherded Iowa to the 2023 national title game, the last two Big Ten women's tournament titles, and a share of the 21-22 league regular season crown. She had the option of staying one more season at Iowa because of the NCAA's waiver year extended to every college athlete who participated during the COVID-19 pandemic-affected 2021 academic year. Clark recently became Division I's all-time leading scorer. Her total points are 3,650 points, 1,049 assists, and 917 rebounds. Clark has stood basketball and sports in general on their ears in her career, making a lot of new fans in Iowa and around the country as she has drawn significant attention to women's basketball. The Hawkeyes sold out Carver-Hawkeye Arena for the season well in advance of the first game and have been selling out everywhere they've been going on the road, including their most recent contest, a 108-60 win over Minnesota on Wednesday night. Clark's presence got Iowa into nationally televised games on network television, including a Saturday evening game at Maryland. Her scoring prowess, her long-distance shooting ability, her passion for playing, and Iowa's results combined to make the Hawkeyes' big box office and a television attraction. Iowa games have set women's basketball viewing records on several networks. As that has happened, Clark has become college sports' number one beneficiary of NIL offers, with endorsement deals with State Farm, Nike, Gatorade, Hy-Vee, and others. That ends it for sports, but if you're looking for something, a grand prize, one year's free rent for a space at Nouveau City Market is up for grabs at the second annual Emerging Entrepreneur of the Year Summit presented by Lynn Area Credit Union. The deadline to apply for the competition is today. The summit takes place on Friday, March 22nd, with a day of free workshops, 
and Saturday, March 23rd for the Emerging Entrepreneur Vendor Market where participants will compete for the grand prize. The Friday workshops include sessions where entrepreneurs can learn about making their businesses more viable. Topics range from business accounting, business banking, and marketing. On March 23rd, emerging entrepreneur finalists will participate in a guest vendor market from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m., followed by a pitch competition. Judges will evaluate the finalists on several categories, including the day's sales, merchandising, and their business plan. The winner will receive a rent-free space at Nouveau City Market for a year, made possible with support from Lynn Area Credit Union. To be eligible, entrepreneurs are required to attend the Friday workshop and Saturday's market and pitch competition. Information and applications are at nouveaucitymarket.org. For questions, contact Matt McBrain at 319-200-4050. And in a Gazette editorial, after the devastating floods of 2008, the Iowa Flood Center was developed at the University of Iowa. The center collected reams of scattered data to create the Iowa Flood Information System. The National Weather Service can provide river levels, relay crest forecasts, and issue warnings, but the flood information system can show how every inch of flooding will affect communities down to street level. It's an invaluable tool for local officials responding to flood threats. We know climate change is spawning more extreme weather conditions, including flooding, but what about droughts? Iowa is entering its fourth year of drought conditions, the longest stretch in decades. So, according to reporting by the Gazette's Brittany Miller, researchers want to create a drought information system that would pull together data on stream flows, soil measure, moisture measurements, and groundwater levels, providing a clearer picture of drought conditions for water utilities, industry, and agriculture. Like the flood system, Drought data would be housed in the UI Center for Hydrologic Development. Currently, scattered data is difficult for decision makers to gather and monitor. It's much like in 2008 when local leaders were using an assortment of tools to project where floodwaters would hit with mixed success. That's no longer a problem thanks to the flood information system. The same would be true of a drought information system. So it seems like a no-brainer, and yet the idea has yet to attract funding. Miller reported it would cost $300,000 up front to build a website and fill it with data. Then $150,000 would be needed annually to support the site and update it with new data and features. Given the immense cost of droughts, the price tag is a bargain. Surely, the Iowa legislature can find that funding within the state's nearly $9 billion general fund budget. After all, the state is also sitting on billions in surplus bucks. This is a good idea that should not languish for lack of financial support. We have the ways and the means to find a drought information system. 
lawmakers should fund the do- find the dollars during this legislative session and approve funding with broad bipartisan support. And in some space news, the first U.S. spacecraft to land on the moon since the Apollo astronauts fell silent Thursday, a week after breaking a leg at touchdown and tipping over near the lunar south pole. Intuitive Machines Lander out of Odessa lasted longer than the company anticipated after it ended up on its side with hobbled solar power and communication. The end came as flight controllers received one last photo from Odessus and commanded its computer and power systems to stand by. That way, the lander can wake up in another two to three weeks if it survives the bitterly cold lunar night. Intuitive Machines spokesman Josh Marshall said these final steps drained the lander's batteries and put Odessus down for a long nap. Before losing power, it was sent back what Intuitive Machines called a fitting farewell transmission. Taken just before touchdown, the picture shows the bottom of the lander on the moon's pockmarked surface, with a tiny crescent earth and a small sun in the background. The lander was originally intended to last about a week at the moon. Houston-based Intuitive Machines became the first private business to land a spacecraft on the moon without crashing when Odessa touched down February 22nd. Only five countries had achieved that since the 1960s, including Japan, which made a sideways landing last month. Odessa carried six experiments for NASA, which paid $118 million for the ride. The first company to take part in NASA's program for commercial lunar deliveries never made it to the moon. Its lander came crashing back to Earth in January. NASA views these private landers as scouts that will pave the way for astronauts due to arrive in another few years. Until Odessus, the last U.S. moon landing was by Apollo 17's Gene Cernan and Harrison Schmidt in 1972. And that does it for today's reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Friday, March 1st. I'm your reader, Grace Barter. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, anytime. Thanks for listening.
From the Bureau of Economic Geology, this is Earth Date. Since the dawn of humankind, people have used caves to explore, hold religious ceremonies, create art, or avoid the dangers of weather and predators. Partly because of that, they continue to fascinate scientists today. To create a cave, Mother Nature needs three things. Water, rock that can be dissolved by it, and lots of time. Rainwater, as it falls through the atmosphere, picks up carbon from CO2 to become a weak carbonic acid. By the time it hits Earth, it's about as acidic as coffee. As it percolates through the soil, it picks up more carbon from decaying plants, becoming a slightly stronger acid. If the rock below the soil is limestone, gypsum, or dolomite, the water can dissolve along tiny cracks. Over many thousands of years, the cracks become channels, then tunnels, and could eventually become caverns. Water might also mix with hydrogen sulfide gas seeping up from natural oil and gas deposits to form sulfuric acid, which can also dissolve the rock. Protected from daily and seasonal changes on the surface, caves can maintain a stable temperature and humidity. In these delicate environments, the remains of ancient animals and humans, which could have quickly decayed on the surface, have been preserved for millennia. Deeper, more isolated caves have preserved bacteria and microbes undisturbed for millions of years. These qualities make caves important sites for researchers, natural time capsules. There's probably an amazing cave near you, so take a trip and get to know your Earth. I'm Scott Tinker, dissolving mysteries on Earth Date. Earth Date is produced by the Bureau of Economic Geology at the University of Texas at Austin, with support from Schlumberger, helping oil and gas companies increase production and efficiency while lowering environmental impact. You can hear more EarthDate stories at earthdate.org.